not sure we can go any further down, but of course it's today, uh, tomorrow. I would like to inform you in case you are uninformed. You know, I haven't listened to the news since Donald Trump was uh, nominated. And I was really happy when, when I wasn't listening to the news. But now I've got a dog in the fight with what's going on with Israel, and so I've been listening to the news. And uh, there seems to be a joy-sucking machine that is installed in every TV as soon as you turn the channel to the news stations. So this week, there was a report that in New York City, there were a bunch of doctors who were refusing to give, to do doctor stuff uh, for Jews. Yeah, they just, they refused to work on Jewish people, and it was shown to be true. Somehow they got some kind of recording or something from the second report I heard. And uh, they got fired, but I, I thought that was kind of strange. Um, I don't think the Hippocratic Oath meant hypocrisy. Just a thought. Towards the end of the week, there was a report that Hamas came out and was refusing responsibility for what took place in Israel on October 7th. How am I supposed to preach with a hat like that? Would you like me to take it off first? I want one. You want it? I'll change it. You know, this is a serious message this week. I'll, I'll, I'll refrain. Um, and they said they didn't do the, the attack. That Israel wanted to start a war. And so it was the IDF that came in and killed and raped all those women and such. It's almost like they pick stuff up and throw it against the wall and whatever sticks. The scary part is I'm sure there'll be somebody who's actually going to believe that. It's amazing the level of delusion that is out there today. When I was talking with Cynthia Alderman, she works down at the Capitol. Um, she's an aide to senators and House of Representative people in the state legislature. And she was giving me a rundown of what was going on this week, and one thing stuck in my, in my head. The Colorado legislature is revamping the food stamp program here in Colorado, and as they were discussing it, one of the one of the gentlemen offered an amendment to the bill that was being proposed that said, if you receive Colorado food stamps, you will be prohibited from buying any products made in Israel. Now the amendment 
was shot down. But as she was saying, what they're trying to do is force a discussion on Israel and Hamas so that uh, many of them are wanting to come down on the side of Hamas in this conflict. And I know I say this every week, but every week it seems to be true. I've never seen anything like this. <laughs> I just say that every single week. Because every week, there's more of this insanity that is, that is revealed. Uh, we're truly living in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 because they would not love, they did not love the truth. God sent strong delusion that they might believe a lie. And uh, it's amazing how many lies are out there and how discerning you have to be. Some of it is blatantly obvious, like the IDF did this. Some of it is a little more subtle. And what's really scary is simply the amount of, of Jewish people who are for Hamas in this country and in some of the countries in Europe. Um, this truly is spiritual warfare. It, it is not a matter of intellect. This is not a cerebral issue. Some of these people are rather intelligent, but absolutely blind to what's going on around them. Shelley brought up something to me, and we, we looked at it. I ended up signing it, but I haven't been able to read. I still haven't found out where this organization is, is at, where they sit. I know where they stand, but I'm not sure where they sit yet. And so we can't, as a congregation, recommend it, but I encourage you to go to this website. It's called me too, M E T O O dash, unless you are a Jew. And it's spelled out U N L E S S U R A J E W dot com. Read it if you agree with it. Basically, what they're trying to do is the UN has not condemned Hamas, they have not mentioned the women who were brutally raped, their babies killed, the beheadings, the burning of babies, they've, they've not mentioned any of this stuff. And this group is trying to call attention to that. And even though I could not find where to read, I encourage you to do so. And if it's something you agree with, then it's a place to sign in. Like I said, I, I did it. Um, it was kind of curious to me that it was speaking only about the women who were killed and taken hostage. Uh, there was nothing about the men or the children. That was odd to me. But um, take an interest in that. If you, if you cannot remember, it's me too dash unless you are a Jew.com. Check it out. And if you agree with what they're, they're wanting to promote, sign it. The title of this message is Hanukkah and the End of Days. There are two major holy days 
that are celebrated by Jewish people that are not in the Torah. And they remember events that took place after Sinai, after Israel entered into the land, Purim and Hanukkah. Both of these refer to the struggles that we have faced since Abraham was first called by God to follow him. Assimilation and or murder are two ways Satan seeks to annihilate Israel. These are the two primary ways that he desires to eradicate us. At Purim, evil wished to murder every Jew. And it didn't matter whether you were a religious Jew or a secular Jew. Many of the Jews in Shushan had already assimilated. We can tell that by the names of the two major players, Mordecai and Esther. Those are not Jewish names. They are now. But they weren't at the time. Mordecai is a variation of Marduk, a Babylonian god who was the king of heaven, and Ishtar, Esther, who was the queen of, of heaven. So Mordecai and Esther had already assimilated. There were Jews in the government, there were Jews in business. Jews were living in the land as citizens of Shushan. Haman didn't care about that. He didn't care if you were a good Jew, a bad Jew. He didn't care what you did. As long as you held the name Jew, he wanted you dead. We had something like that back in the 1930s in Germany. There were many Germans uh, who were Jewish of Jewish descent in the government and throughout the, the culture. It, it was irrelevant. As long as you were a Jew, he wanted you dead. Hanukkah is a time when evil attempted to destroy the nation of Israel spiritually through assimilation. If we become like other nations, then we lose our distinctive. We lose our purpose in creation. There's no point to us. Both Hanukkah and Purim are indicative of the continual cycle Israel has found itself in since its inception. We go from Tahor, which is cleanliness, purity, to Tameh a defilement, an unclean state, and then we move to Shuvah, where we return, we repent, and come back to Tahor. The change in Yaakov's name after he wrestled with God was quite descriptive. We're told in the scriptures that Israel indicates the one who fights with God and man and prevails. Jacob's life is a life of trouble. He fought with everybody, from God to everybody he met, and he won. During the intertestamental period, Israel was controlled by the Seleucid Empire under a man by the name of Antiochus IV. Antiochus. This was the Greek Syrian remnant of Alexander's empire. When Alexander died at a young age, I think he was 35 if my memory serves, 
His kingdom was broken up. His empire was broken up. Ptolemy got Egypt, and Antiochus IV got Syria <coughs> and the Greek empire. Antiochus gave himself the title Pethany, which means God is with us. In Hebrew, it would be Emmanuel. Um, he was a rather capricious fellow, given to great whimsy, which is redundant, but his, his capriciousness was certainly enough to be redundant to describe it. His contemporaries dubbed him Epimenes, sarcastically, which means the mad one. He was one of Hashichot's Mishomem, that is mentioned by Daniel. It means abomination that makes desolate, vis-a-vis -vis the Antichrist. There's been many Antichrists throughout history. Paul talks about Antichrist in the plural. After occupying Israel, he defiled the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar and replacing the high priest that should have been, according to lineage, with an assimilated Greek Jew. He forbid circumcision by any Jews, and he destroyed every Torah scroll that he could find. Now, there was a benign acceptance of this by the Greek Jews. They had been assimilated into the Greek culture, and they found no problem with what Antiochus was doing. In Israel, however, the Judean Jews were rather upset at this clash of cultures. This is the backdrop to the story of Hanukkah. On a day that began like any other, a minor priest from the town of Modin was walking down the street. He was of no particular note, not, not a higher up in the priestly orders. And he's approached by one of the soldiers, and they order him and some other Jews who are around him to sacrifice a pig on an altar that they constructed right there in the middle of the street. Now, one of the Greek Jews starts to comply with this order. And Matthias, or Matityahu, in the spirit of Pankhus, kills that Greek Jew. Priests carried swords at the time. A lot of them still do, especially now. He kills not only the Greek Jew who's about to comply with this order, but the soldiers, he just kills everybody. That spark ignites a tinderbox that was Israel, and the rebellion is on. His son Yehuda leads the fight after Matitya, um, who dies, and Yehuda is so fierce on the battlefield that he is dubbed he receives the moniker Hamakabi, the hammer. This translation is taken from the Hebrew word Makaga. It's where we get Krav Maga, the Israeli form of self-defense. 
uh, that's used by its combat troops. Now, less widely known is the understanding that Maccabi is an acronym for Micha Mocha Ba'elim Adonai, who is like the O Lord, taken from the song of Moshe in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. It is likely that both understandings are accurate. Yehuda uh, retakes Yerushalayim and purifies the altar with fire and rededicates the temple to the service of God. Subsequently, Yehuda and all his brothers, save Yonatan and Shimon, are killed in battle. Now, after Yehuda dies, Yonatan negotiates a peace with Antiochus and is installed as the high priest, and the eternal cycle of holiness, defilement, and shuvah begins anew. None of Matit Yehud's children are qualified to be the high priest. Matit Yehud is a minor priest from a small town. He probably never visited Yerushalayim to make, and participated in the sacrifice. Remember, there's thousands, tens of thousands of priests you could wait your whole life to get a, a, a shot at making a sacrifice or tending to the altar of incense or any one of the other jobs that the priest took care of. But all of a sudden, his son is now the high priest of Israel. Eventually, John Hyrcanus II becomes the high priest and the king of Israel. He declares himself to be the king and the high priest. He is effectively declaring himself to be Mashiach. In Psalm 110, the Lord says, I swore an oath and I will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Mashiach's line of priesthood is from Melchizedek, and it has to be, because under the Levitical system, if you were qualified to be a priest from the tribe of Levi, you were immediately disqualified to be the king, which had to come from the tribe of Judah. Melchizedek was the king of Shalom. Later it would be called Yerushalayim. And he was also a priest of the Most High. So under Melchizedek's line of priesthood, you could be both a king and a priest. When... When this takes place, the leadership of Israel is now utterly defiled, politically, religiously, and in every other way. I believe Hyrcanos and Antiochus are two of those Yeshua refers to as false messiahs in John chapter 10, verse 8. All who he's speaking about, he's proclaiming that, uh, he's speaking about these false messiahs, and he says, all who came before me were thieves and robbers, and the sheep or the remnant did not believe them. They were proven to be false. These words are spoken at Hanukkah. John chapter 10, verse 22 is the feast of dedication. That's what Hanukkah means, dedication. The Pharisees, remembering what took place during the intertestamental period, demand of Yeshua in verse 24, if you are the Messiah, stop. Stop skirting the issue. Tell us plainly. When Yeshua declares in verse 30, I and the Father are one, many of the Pharisees who were there pick up stones to, to kill him. Why? 
because they understand. We sometimes do not, but they understand what Yeshua is saying. He's quoting from the Shema, and he's saying, I and the Father are one. We're equal. Those people did not wish to repeat the sins of their fathers, some of them. Their fathers had accepted, many had accepted Antiochus as Emmanuel from amongst the Greek Jews, and others ex accepted Hyrcanos as the Mishiach. Under Hyrcanos, Israel became quite a power. He conquers Idumea and forces, he, he went on a rampage and he started wars with all the nations around him. He conquers Idumea and forces them to convert to Judaism. Now this is strictly forbidden in the Torah. Idumea was the land of the descendants of Esau. And God says in, Jan in Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 5, I have given this land to the descendants of Esau, and you will not try to conquer this land. You will not take this land for yourself. Interestingly, Herod, who was the king during the time of Yeshua, when he was born, was an Idumean. Herod is thought to, by Jewish people to be our punishment. The John Hyrcanus' actions and his claims of false messiah. He took over Idumea, now we have an Idumean ruling over us. Herod is one of the worst sociopaths in history. He follows in the footsteps of Pharaoh, who killed thousands, maybe tens of thousands of babies to prevent the birth of Moshe. Herod kills the same amount to prevent the birth of Yeshua when he finds out from the Meiji where he's supposed to be born. Now, according to 2 Maccabees, after retaking Jerusalem and purging the temple uh, from defilement, the Jews engaged in a late celebration of Sukkot to rededicate the altar. Sukkot could not be celebrated, we're told in, in the first Maccabees, it couldn't be celebrated because we were at war at the time. Jerusalem wasn't ours, and so we could not celebrate Hachag, the celebration, the feast. The word Hanukkah is used in, actually in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 9, when Solomon dedicates the altar of the temple. It reads Hanukkah HaMezbeach. HaMezbeach is the altar. Hanukkah is the dedication of that altar. The Maccabees caused this late celebration of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles in the month of Kislev. Sukkot Kislev. The Jewish historian in the first century, Josephus, refers to Hanukkah as a feast of lights. He's the first one we, at least we know about, who called it the feast of lights. And he, re he recounts the story of the single cruise of oil that was supposed to last one day, but miracle of miracles lasted eight days. He's, he's the first historical reference that I've found to speak of that story. The Jews also play a little game at Hanukkah. It's called the dreidel, 
and the dreidel is the four-sided top that you spin and it falls on one side and then there's four letters on each side of the dreidel there's a nun a gimel a hey and a shin and it's an acronym for nesgadol hayasham a great miracle happened there that game was invented because the soldiers of Antiochus would randomly check. They'd just come into Jewish homes and start searching to make sure they were not studying God's word, that there was no, there was no Torah in that house. The Torah scrolls were hidden during these raids. They had lookouts in the Jewish neighborhoods. They were told when the, when the soldiers were coming, so they hit the Torah scroll, and they got out the dreidels, and they started playing with the dreidels in order to look innocent. Now try to understand, rebellions are not isolated. They are not uh, an entire society rebelling against an external force. This is true in the story of Hanukkah. It's true in many of the other rebellions that have taken place, including the one in the United States. The conflict during the time of what we call Hanukkah was as much a civil war as it was a revolt. There were many Greek Jews fighting on the side of Antiochus. Just like in America, there were many of the colonists who fought on the side of the English and swore allegiance to the King of England. They were called Tories. We see this happen in any country where there's a revolt. Some actually side with the, with the prevailing power. Yeshua grew up in the midst of this political and religious upheaval. The acrimony between Greek and Judean Jews of the intertestamental period persisted even amongst the believers of the first century, in Acts chapter 6, the Greek Jews are complaining to Peter and the other apostles, and they're saying, the Judean Jews aren't giving us enough rations. We're not getting enough food. And Peter's annoyed. He, what do we have to do with this? Appoint some people from amongst you, godly men, who can distribute the food. Those in Hebrew... Those people would be called shamashim. In Greek, they would be called dekanos, deacons, servants, who would distribute this food. Stephanos, Stephan is a Greek Jew who was chosen for, for this task. He's one of them. To make sure that the Greek Jews got the same rations as the, the Judean Jews. Because that, that conflict was still alive and well. Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul, is also a Greek Jew. He's from Tarsus. It explains in part the visceral dislike of the Judean Jews towards him. Of course, bringing believers to be tried and, and killed also probably had a little something to do with their dislike of him. Now, two primary fac factions of Jewish people emerge from the conflict of Hanukkah that is described in Maccabees. In the New Covenant, we read about Sadducees 
and Pharisees. And these groups began not in really ancient times, but in the intertestamental period after the conflict with Antiochus. <clears throat> the Sadducees were mainly priests who believed only the Torah was inspired by God and only the Torah was given to Moshe on Mount Sinai. They didn't believe in the inspiration of the prophets or any of the writings. They also didn't believe in the Torah Shabal Peh, the oral Torah. It's a um, pet from the mouth. In fact, it was illegal to write down the Torah Shabal Peh until the first century, towards the end of the first century, when many of our rabbis were being killed by the Romans, they they decided it would be a good a good thing to write down this oral Torah, and it has become what we know as the Talmud. Just as the Greek Jews, the Sadducees made many concessions to Rome in an attempt to avoid being killed, destroyed. The second group was in opposition to the Sadducees, and they were the Pharisees. In Hebrew, parashim, which means to be separate. They held themselves apart. They believed in the Tanakh, again an acronym that means Torah, the law, Nevaim, the prophets, and Ketuvim, the writings. And they believed also in the resurrection, and they believed in this oral Torah that Moshe was on the mountain for 40 days. It took only a moment for God to inscribe the 10 words on the stone, and for the rest of the time, he gave to Moshe the oral law that explained how to fulfill these commandments. Eventually, the oral law became more important in Jewish society than the Torah itself. And this is indicated by a very poignant statement that uh, reveals, it's very re revealing. In the Talmud it says, he who studies Torah has limited righteousness. He who studies the Mishnah, Mishnah means repetition. So the, 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 there's a repetition of the laws of Torah in the Mishnah. He who studies the Mishnah has greater righteousness. But he who studies the Gemara, the completion, has the greatest righteousness. Further, they, did, they established a rabbinic succession back to Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher, Moses, our great one. It's up against this backdrop of darkness and corruption that Yeshua appears and gives context to one of his most bold proclamations. Anachi ha'or shel ha'olam. I am the light of the world. John chapter 8. Also, it was during Sukkot when he speaks these words. Yeshua addresses many of the oral traditions on the so-called sermon, in the so-called Sermon on the Mount. It's not such a mount. And he introduces his corrections to the oral Torah with a little formula. You have heard it said, but I say to you, 
And that is the language he uses throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It seems like whenever man gets a hold of something of God, we're compelled to change it. I've developed a little saying, there is no blessing given by God that man can't turn into a curse. Unfortunately, the history of the church finds believers trapped in the same cycle of purity, impurity, and repentance. What began in purity with Yeshua and the apostles is soon corrupted. It has been this way since the garden. As the Pharisees, the church pronounced itself the sole authority to interpret scripture. And after the death of the last Jewish apostle, everything Jewish is expunged from this new faith. And what began as a Jewish movement in Israel is now utterly unrecognizable to Jewish people. Early on, the Catholic, which means universal, the Catholic Church splits in a political upheaval between Rome and Constantinople. The accounts of the brutality of the one church against another is really quite extraordinary. It, it's barbaric. The body of Messiah would be fractured again when Martin Luther resisted the Catholic Church. The Protestant Church began with him, but it didn't end with him. And the followers of Luther eventually split into literally thousands of different denominations. Someone has actually figured out there's something like 10,000 different denominations right now. And this paring down of the body into thinner and thinner slices has diminished our power and our testimony. In John 17, Yeshua's high priestly prayer to his father, Father, I pray they be one, that the whole world would know that you have sent me. The body of Messiah is a far piece from one. The oneness felt by the, the apostles that we see in the book of Acts been a long time since we had that. Those who would replace the commandments of God with the traditions of men are confined to no ethnicity. It's a human condition. We don't ever seem to be satisfied with anything. Even Adam and Chaba, they were in paradise. Every need satiated. What do we give into? Coveting. Eat this and be like God. Ooh, I want to be like God. God's people are either ascending the mount into holiness or descending the backside of Sinai into defilement. It just, the walk of God's people on this earth looks like a sine wave. Now, I am not a prophet. I'm just a lonely, lowly shepherd. I have no prophetic skills 
and I'm aware of, save that of my reason. Reason also allows you to be able to predict an event will happen. You analyze a situation, you see trends, and you can predict. Most of Western science is based on the ability to reason. If this is a case and this is a case, then this will likely be the outcome. The whole premise of hypothesis. My reason tells me I have seen the fulfillment of prophecy. God did not come down and speak with me. God did not bring me up into the third heaven to show me the things that are to come. My reason tells me I have seen the things that are to come and have come. I was born two years after Israel became a state. And I see in that event the fulfillment of both Yehezkel, Ezekiel, and Yerimyahu, Jeremiah. Both of them describe an Israel that has returned to the land and there's no longer any northern kingdom or southern kingdom, that they serve God shoulder to shoulder and they serve one shepherd. The Israel that exists today is the only Israel in history that can fulfill the warrants of those two prophecies. It's the only Israel since Solomon's time that has no northern and southern kingdom. No Jews know what tribe they're from. The records, the genealogical records, were kept at the temple. When the temple was destroyed within a century or so, Nobody knows. The only people who know what tribe they're from are the Ephraimites. The Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they all know what tribe. All of them know what tribe of Israel they're from. The people of Israel have no idea what, what, what tribe we're from, unless you're a Levi or a Kohen. And if that kind of sarcasm bothers you, think of what it does to me. That's a coveting, not of my possessions, but of identity itself. Everybody today is wanting to be Jewish. Well, maybe not today. Everybody before October 7th wanted to be Jewish. That's turning, isn't it? Now it's in vogue to what? Hate the Jews. To degrade them. This is the history of my people from as long back as you can find and look. We're sometimes in favor, we're sometimes out of favor. It happened with Joseph. Joseph was given some prime land to live in, made second only to Pharaoh. Then a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph came to power. Next thing you know, we're in slavery for centuries. Another milestone on the prophetic timeline it, took place in 1967. And this was truly a miraculous move of God's hand. And after 2,000 years, Yerushalayim was once again in the hands of Jewish people. Unbelievable. We were facing odds of an excess of 100 to 1. 
And for six days, Israel fought. And on the seventh day, Israel rested in Yerushalayim. Now, if you don't see God's hand in that, you're willfully blind. A hundred to one odds is not typically overcome in your own strength. But my joy at the retaking of Yerushalayim and my joy at Yerushalayim being recognized by President Trump as the capital of Israel is mitigated some by my knowledge of history and the prophetic timeline, what is coming. The next hashtag on this prophetic promenade is the building of the third temple. And those who do not believe in Yeshua will see the third temple as Ezekiel's temple. My people talk about the third temple all the time. And they believe this will be Ezekiel's temple. What we would call the millennial temple. It is not. It is a temple of the last the last abomination that makes desolate. The beast of Revelation. God does not build his temple. The beast of Revelation builds his temple. And I am asked often, and every time I'm asked this, my head just cocked to the side a little bit, like, like a dog that sees something it doesn't understand, and God gives my ears the ability to perk up. And I'm asked, you're going to go and worship when the temple's rebuilt? No. I don't want to have anything at all to do with that temple. Now, I will admit, my curiosity is piqued. I would love to see the priests in their garments, the altar, the winged clubim, the engravings, the grandeur of what that temple is going to be. I'd love to see it. I have looked upon the crown of pure gold that says, Kadosh Adonai, holiness unto the Lord. I have looked at the menorah, the priestly garments. Curiosity to me, it's part of my heritage, but, and those things are already made. The lovers for the washings and the oblations. But to worship in there? Never. Sometimes we don't understand and we don't believe the things God tells us. We are the temple of the living God. The temple was the place that housed the Shekinah, the dwelling presence of God. And the dwelling presence of God will not be in that temple. Where is it? It's in us. The new covenant tells us that we are that temple. And each of us is a stone properly fitted one to another. The place where the Shekinah, the dwelling presence of God, dwells. When a temple is built, it will usher in the most profound defilement in the history of this world. And that is a profound statement. 
For this world has seen some mighty powerful defilements over its history. It will literally be hell on earth when the dragon has been cast from heaven and walks amongst us as evil incarnate. It's Revelation 12. This is not just a vision. This is a vision of what is going to happen. In Revelation chapter 12, the heavens rejoice. Why? Because the devil, the serpent of old, has been cast from the heavens. And finally, they're, they're done with Hasatan, the accuser of the brethren. And that same portion warns us who are on earth. But woe to those who are on the earth. And now the devil walks amongst you. And he is enraged, for he knows his time is short. The heavens are rejoicing. The earth will begin its moaning. Many believe that they believe Hollywood, that Satan sits on a throne in, in hell and tells his demons where to go. This is, this is fantasy. It's delusion. It's not scripture. Up until the moment when he is cast from heaven, where is he? Heaven. What is he doing? Accusing the brethren. What is our Lord doing? Defending us. He's our advocate. He's interceding. Get, get Hollywood, California out of your mind when you're thinking of Scripture. These films on the Bible, I'm telling you, get the book. It's so much better. It's also so much more accurate. The Mashiach coming was God becoming a man. Emmanuel, God is with us. Epimene, the spirit of the Antichrist, is man's desire to become God. It was there in the beginning, in the garden. This latter, man's desire to become God, is an abomination that leaves only desolation in its wake. It will end in epimony, a complete madness. Man is struck with two images, the image of God and the image of the beast. I have a body just like every beast of the field, and it operates in a very similar fashion. Similar organs, similar processes that take place. That body houses the breath and the light of my God, his image. Those who worship the beast are those who worship the creature rather than the creator. Paul addressed this in the first century. In the book of Romans, the very first chapter, these images war within a man. That's the conflict that we face every single day. Will I walk as a beast, as a, as a creature of pure flesh, or will that awareness of God that is brought to me by his breath and the light that resides in me, will that break through the flesh and cause me to walk as a man of God rather than a man? That's the battle we face. Roman, Romans 7 describes this battle that, that Paul is in every single day, every single moment of every day. Psalm 2 
describes the final battle of this war, when those who worship the creation fight against the Creator and His Mashiach. Read it. The information is available. It's there. Read. There has always been a remnant of those who are true to God, small in number, but possessed of Lev Tahor, a pure heart, and they will never capitulate. That's why the world seeks to murder them. It has to murder them. They will never turn over. The remnant has inspired my primary philosophy on life. You don't fight because you think you can win. You fight because something is worth fighting for. And if it's not fight worth fighting for, even if you win, what have you won? That's the philosophy that guided Matiti Yahu and the Mac Maccabees when they revolted. It was the attitude of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was the attitude of Pinchas. It was the attitude of Joshua. You fight because something is worth fighting for. It has value. It has more value than what your life is worth. The warrior doesn't hold his life cheap. He places great value on his life. He doesn't place the greatest value on his life. There is something greater that he is willing to trade his life for. In the scriptures it tells us God would be that something greater. Some see their country. Some see the guy next to them. As a believer, my God. is the philosophy of those in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, who overcome the beast by the blood of the Lamb, the testimony they have in the blood of the Lamb, and the fact that they didn't love their lives even when faced with death. Many believers, I mean, we're getting fed this rosy picture. The believers won't be in tribulation. Well, that'll be a first. The scriptures tell me the beast will make war against the saints and he will prevail. Where do you think all those martyrs come from? They are willing to die rather than abandon the testimony in the blood of the Lamb. History is once again calling muster on the warriors of God. Will you walk the path of Matit and refuse to bow or behave as that nameless Jew who would save his life by going along to get along. Truth be known, that that is a choice that is presented to us every single day, in every single situation we find ourselves in. If we're not living for God in times of relative peace, we delude ourselves to believe that we will live for him in times of war. If you think these things cannot happen in our days, you are deluded. They are happening right now.
It would seem the entire world is forsaking Israel and the Jewish people. In a heartbeat. A second. All we had to do is defend ourselves. Everybody loves us when we're slaughtered. Oh, the poor Jews. As soon as we pick up a sword and fight. Oh, you're no different than them. I say nay, nay. I say there's a tremendous difference between Israel and Hamas. And if you can't see that, you have no eyes. We don't even have to look to Hamas and Israel. What about our own country? Over the past few years, those who don't comply with government edicts lose their jobs. They lose their livelihood. They're ostracized and castigated. How many doctors, good doctors, were castigated, their reputations destroyed because they went against the, quote, prevailing wisdom. They dared to question. I thought that's what science was about. Churches were ordered to stop meeting, and those that didn't comply were forced to shut down. Thousands shut down anyway. What's the point of having a church if nobody's meeting? Our lives are changing daily. Every single thing that can be shaken is being shaken in our day, today. Tomorrow you will say, I've never seen anything like this. The same thing you said today, and the same thing you will say the day after that. Be not deluded. The war is already here, and truth has never left. The prophets have all spoken of these times. Prophets and men of reason can certainly read the signs of the time. Tilzak, be strong. Walk in the ancient and the good paths. My brother Dan prayed for me. Amen for the prayer for this message. Open your ears and hear. May the spirit that first inspired the Maccabees and all the followers of God throughout history empower us in our day. May this Hanukkah be a time when we re rededicate this temple, not some foreign temple, external temple. This is the temple. We dedicate this Hanukkah to the service of your God, to your faith in God. And know that he walks with you. Father, in Yeshua's name, thank you for your prophecies. Thank you for your truths. Thank you for eyes to see. Thank you for ears to hear. We even thank you for these times. For as it gets darker and darker, you have told us, look up. Your redemption draws near. That is exactly what happened with Stefan in the midst of the darkness just before his death here. He looked up and he beheld you, Lord, standing at the right hand of glory. We need such vision in our day. Let us stand strong. In Yeshua's precious name. Amen.